if you don't have a personal representative named, or you know the named personal representative you know predeceases you, what have you, what happens? Who gets picked? So generally speaking, a spouse, kids, those folks are gonna have first priority. As you get, and parents actually also, because they have priority as heirs. So spouse first, then kids, then parents, and then they go out to like your siblings. But if you're from a family with like seven siblings, they all have equal priority, which is something to keep in mind. Welcome to the Will in the Way podcast a podcast about making estate planning simple and accessible with fun stories, delightful soapbox rants, and more educational resources than you can imagine. Each week, we deliver the best insights and practical advice on wills, trusts, and how to protect what's important to you. Now here's your host, Attorney Alexandra Jackson. Hi, I'm Christian Terrison, and this is Alexandra Jackson, estate planning attorney extraordinaire at Jackson and McNichol. Uh, today, uh, we're going to cover some different estate planning topics on our wonderful podcast, A Will and a Way. So I have a list of questions here uh, on the second commandment yes. of estate planning, which is the importance of being decisive. Now, the, the first question right off is how can making clear decisions about your estate today provide peace of mind uh, for your future and then also the future of your loved ones? So one of the biggest issues that family members generally have is they're trying to second guess what you wanted. So if you actually commit something to paper, regardless of whether they think it's nuts, completely separate issue. But if you actually put something to paper and sign it, that is set. When your family looks at that, even if they think you made a bad choice, it is set. So it is a lot easier for family members to move forward if something is final. If you have not got something in place, there's going to be a lot of arguments about, no, grandma said I could get the toaster. She said you got the egg beater. I'm being slightly facetious with the examples, but I did in fact inherit a hand crank egg beater, so that is a real one. I inherited a toaster. It's a really nice <laughs> dual lit made in the UK. I can't believe I got both of us with that one. That right. was planned. Well, <laughs> and my brother, he has the sunbeam toaster where you put the slices in and they lower down elegantly and yeah. they come right up when they're perfectly done. So my, my grandmother bequeathed a wealth of toasters to our, to our family. Uh, may she That's rest in peace. Excellent. Actually, those sound like really nice toasters. I and have I have one that puts Mickey Mouse on the side, but um, that's probably getting too far into this. So, I mean, really, the big thing is just if it's down and done, your family knows what to roll with. They have a starting point. So, how can that help people head off, you know, disagreements? Let's say at the pass. Because if there's one thing I know about estate planning is that, you know, once it comes into play, it can get really contentious. Even with, you know, cohesive families, people who, who love each other and, you know, uh, get along, suddenly when you're dealing with, with probating an estate, well, the claws come out. Yeah, one of my biggest pieces of advice to clients, and not everybody's comfortable doing this, I get that, but one of the 
best tips is to talk with your family about your estate plan. I know that a lot of people are uncomfortable talking about death. Mostly I'm seeing the ones who are willing to make the plunge because they're here, right? But if you tell your family at Thanksgiving every year, remember, you're getting the sunbeam toaster, then if somebody's saying, well, Grandma didn't really mean to give you the sunbeam toaster 10 years later and you've all been listening to it every Thanksgiving, it really hits a little differently. The rest of the family is like, I don't think so. We've listened to this over and over. She was very clear. It's in the will. I don't know where you're going from, but step off, basically. It's just one of those things where the clearer you are with your family members, the less likely there is to be a fight. They all know what's supposed to happen, right? So they just follow it. People fight anyway. All sorts of weird things happen. But it's generally easier if A, there's a plan in place, and B, people know about it. Those two things are half the battle. So let's transition a little uh, to how being decisive in estate planning now, today, can, I guess, prevent the stress of uncertainty and rushed decisions, things like that, if the unthinkable does happen. So with estate planning, there's kind of three phases you could be in. There's, it's not an immediate problem, it is an immediate problem, or it is way too late. Like you missed that boat completely. We are trying to prevent you from being in the way too late category. But doing things while you're healthy and don't need it is also going to prevent you from missing the boat on things like financial power of attorney and advanced healthcare directive, where you can be alive and miss the boat. You know, if you don't have capacity, if you've got dementia that's too advanced, for example, then you can't sign those documents. Your family has to do a guardianship or conservatorship. Those are unpleasant. I will put that out there. You've got to go to court. There's people attorneyed up on every side. The person involved in the center of it, at that point, you usually don't know what's going on, right? Everybody's got opinions, so you should put them down on paper where they'll be followed. Another question sort of in a related vein. When, you know, when you're estate planning, how can being decisive smooth out the probate process? Uh, you know, when, when you have somebody who's, you know, they, they put a will together, but they push a lot of things down the road versus the client who, you know, puts in black and white what they want, uh, uh, you know, when you're probate, which would you rather probate? <laughs> to tell you, definitely, I want to probate the one where they listed everything out. One of the biggest things that I see with clients, and, you know, this happened with like Robin Williams, is the fight over the sentimental stuff. And sometimes you don't know what your family thinks is sentimental. Um, I had a client who was dying of cancer and he and his wife were having these conversations and they were talking to the kids. And the wife was like, they want his baseball cap collection. And I was like, yeah, because probably means a lot to them. But she was just, yeah, they were completely flabbergasted. It was like the things that the kids wanted were not at all the things that they thought they would care about. Um, and going back to the whole part about being rushed, I have had clients who come in for consult, they say they're not ready, and then I see them a certain amount of time later because they have the diagnosis. They are terminal 
things are advanced. Mm -hmm. It is extremely stressful for your family members to know, and for you, <laughs> that you came in and didn't do anything. It is not a fun feeling because suddenly if you are rushed, you are trying to get in somebody's door as fast as humanly possible to put something together. And what ends up happening is you can miss stuff. You're not being thoughtful. You are trying to get something done as fast as humanly possible. You may not quite understand what you're doing if you're trying to do it yourself. So you can overlook things that if you'd sat down and thought about it, you would have gone through. Obviously, I don't like clients, even clients who are terminally ill, make bad judgments. I've talked them through the whole process, regardless. But it's something to think about. Do you do your best when you're in an emergency situation? Most of us don't. So it is definitely better to do stuff ahead of time. Well, and I remember you uh, talking about the consequences if you're trying to disinherit somebody and you miss something. Yes. What happens to what, what the thing you left out? Generally, they get it. So, you know, if classic example, and I know this is a problem a lot of places, but right now I'm seeing a lot of parents whose kids have drug problems. So they are not confident or comfortable leaving children money or property that they think is just going to right into somebody's hands, right? Most people don't remember to put in a tiebreaker. So a lot of the time, what happens with the physical stuff, Wait, right? What's a tiebreaker for... Oh, so, okay. Jenny, not your Jenny, and Susan are fighting about who gets the hand crank egg beater that they use to make green jello salad with grandma. That's what I did with mine. So the question is, who decides who gets that? Legally, it's the personal representative in Maine. You'll hear executor or executrix. But legally speaking, that's the person responsible for handing things out. Now... The person receiving the residue is generally entitled to anything not specifically listed. There's two types of gifts you can make in a will. One is called a specific bequest, which means the egg beater to Jenny, or you can have a residuary bequest and everything else to Susan. If the egg beater is listed out, it's gonna go to however it's listed to. If it's not listed out, then it's gonna to go to the person who gets the residue. You will see, however, that sometimes family members are like, eh, I just kinda of want everybody to take what they want, right? Not great from a legal clarity perspective. Um, I have some Shoot, clients- my estate plan. <laughs> you better not do that to your wife. Um, but I have some clients who've done things like, I want each of these 10 people to be able to pick one item from my jewelry collection and the final determination will be made by um, Aunt May. So somebody mm. who is either the personal representative or somebody completely separate. There is a decider. So if people are fighting over a specific item, you can generally force it somehow. A lot of times language I'll use is something like, if you're leaving everything to the three kids for your physical stuff or for whatever it is, you know, they each get to have a turn selecting from the items that are at issue. Everybody gets to go around and it's, it's like a freaking NFL draft. So like you go, you get your first choice and then somebody else goes and somebody else goes and you may have only wanted three things and in the first round you lose out and you only take the one. 
you don't have to take more stuff. You can if you're feeling mean about it. But um, basically, um, I've seen ones where flip a coin if somebody's arguing, literally coin toss. But you can put in all sorts of mechanisms. They can get fake monopoly money and they can spend it on what the value of each item is. Um, so you can really get creative with your tiebreakers. Yes. Um, I generally do the, you know, and if they can't agree, they each pick it around or the personal representative like decides who gets it. Um, Cause you know, there are certain times that everybody wants one item, but only one person wants only that one item and the other people also want other things. And so maybe it's fair to give the one person the only thing they want and the other people get some other stuff, but. Well, you know, I think I'm gonna get really creative and tell tell my uh, heirs and assigns to ask chat GPT if there's a problem. <laughs> Just to add that little degree of chaos into my estate planning. Is there any prohibition against that? I don't think there is. Is that specific enough I mean, to be enforceable? The only issue is if chat GPT exists at the time, right? Or if it's called something else. Sure. If that changes, that's an issue. But I think you could use that okay. as your roulette wheel. Right. I mean. Chat GPT and its successors and interests. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Successors. So basically, whoever has the most common name would win, right? Or like the most common letters in their name. Yeah, right. Because it's a word predictor. So if More you've got. A fancy word predictor. If you've got a John Smith, they're probably going to win, I guess. Uh, yeah, actually, I think after this, we'll go try that. We'll put, put a list of names in ChatGPT and, and tell see who it, it picks. Pick, pick who inherits, you know, XYZ item. That's going to be hysterical. Oh, boy. The, no possibility for manipulating there, right? <laughs> um, so how about when you're setting up a trust, how can decisiveness be, be a boon there? Okay. So I talk about this a lot. But the difference between doing a probate and having a trust is where you put the paperwork. If you're willing to do the trust, you are front-loading that paperwork. Mm. Talk about a gift. Other people really, really like if, if you've done it correctly. I say that with a caveat. It's always got to be done correctly, right? <laughs> Otherwise, you have a problem anyway. But if you take on a trust and you commit to it, all your bank accounts are going to be in there, your car's potentially, depending on how bad a driver you are. Um, I do have to tell clients that sometimes. Um, your house and other real estate is probably going to be in there. Your ownership in a business is probably going to be in there. And that's immediate. So as soon as you're dead, and they can get proof of it, like a death certificate, the next person just steps in, and they can start dealing with everything. So one, significantly faster than probate. My local probate's great. It's usually a couple of weeks to get the forms, but... Earlier this year, it was like a month, and I was just sitting there twiddling my thumbs, waiting for my poor client, who's watching the reverse mortgage go up and up and up, to be appointed so she can sell the thing and just get out from under the state from which she's making no money. Um, she's really just doing this because she loves her stepdad, and thank God, because somebody had to. But with a trust, you can basically eliminate all of the kind of probate process stuff and front load it. So... You're taking care of it. Your family doesn't have to. I promise they will like that. I really do. Caveat, in addition to being correctly done, you should update your trust periodically. I frequently work with trusts that are older and haven't been updated, and the tax laws have changed. So a lot of the older trusts 
were structured in a specific way to take advantage of tax breaks for married couples. So they wouldn't have to pay the estate tax, yada, yada. Well, the estate tax has changed dramatically since then. But the terms of the trust still say that you have to like create these two new trusts and they gotta be named to these things. And so I've got my poor folks running around playing whack-a-mole with trust names, right? Um, and I have to create new documents for them and all of this. Whereas if they'd updated it when the estate tax stuff had changed, could have used probably a lot less in actually working with the trust. We would not have a million and a half different things that we had to rename and get new IDs for and create and yada yada. Mm. So it can be good if done well. Well, no, that actually leads... Which is true of anything. <laughs> well, I was going to say it leads right into the next question I was going to ask about, um, you know, decisiveness and managing tax burdens, doing, doing the most efficient tax planning. So a lot of this depends on two things. One, where you live. Um, was working for a bit with an attorney who was representing someone where one of the heirs was in Germany and she literally did not want this like six figure account because her taxes were gonna go nuts. She was gonna have to be like under the craziest form of scrutiny the German equivalent of the IRS had, right? So she was just like, I don't want the money. It's foreign money, so that's usually a huge problem for tax consequences. And I don't need it. And I'm gonna have to pay a fortune on this. So she said, I don't want any part of it. But with taxes, um, as, as my tax professor, Professor Maine used to say, bless him, he's the best, um, Congress giveth and Congress taketh away. So for example, right now, 11.6 million per person plus the adjustments for inflation, et cetera, per person is the federal estate tax exemption. If you do not individually at your death, and married couples, remember this is doubled, own 11.6 plus whatever the adjustment is for inflation right now, at your death, you are not gonna pay any federal estate tax. Whew, I'm safe. <laughs> yes, so am I, right? And in Maine, I'm still safe. It's five million per person. And it's five million because they upped it to match the feds and then the feds went sky high. They did not generously up it after that, but I don't think uh, that was shocking because they'd only just upped it. Um, but there are places like Massachusetts where the state tax exemption is a million. There are places like New Hampshire that don't have one. You know, there is no estate tax. So depending on where you live, and also for example, Pennsylvania has an inheritance tax. Other states do not necessarily. So where you live and where the people you love live really matters a lot tax-wise. It's really important to know estate tax exemption for where you live, estate tax exemption for the federal government, which let's face it, most of us are probably not gonna run into it even when it goes back down to 5 million, but that's a good example. That is already set to run out. When they put it in place to put it up to 11 plus million dollars, it was already set to go away for 2026, to go back to five. So. There was a planning window there for people who were over that amount to give things away and, and who didn't expect to die in that period, just so we're clear. Um, so for young folks with a lot of money, or younger, I guess, I won't even go there. Math is not my strength. Anyway, the moral of that story was there was a, a window of like five, six years to do planning 
with gift taxes and all of that stuff. But it's a window. It's not a permanent feature. It's closing. So if you keep on top of the changes, if you at least check in with your attorney and be like, does this affect me at all? Because a lot of the times we'll be like, no, it doesn't. But if it does, that's really good to know. And, you know, also keep your contact info up to date with your attorney. Sometimes we need to find you. Sometimes you need to be found and you don't know it. So anyway, off the soapbox. Yeah, that's the worst one. The people who need to be found and aren't aware they need to be found. We have original wills that are older than I am. We cannot find them. Anyway. Oh, boy. Um, how about maintaining a decisive mindset in choosing your your personal representative or your executive? Mm -hmm. who, who do you pick? And how does being decisive benefit right. you? Picking... Your agents, your personal representative, is not a good time to be emotional. It is a good time to acknowledge the fact that you are about to bury somebody in a mountain of paperwork. And they are not going to think that's about love and affection. I'll be real with you. I get people sometimes who are like, oh, well, I think I want to name both of my children because I love them both equally. And like, totally fair. I get that. They don't want to make it look like they're favoring one child over the other. I've seen people who are like, well, I should name the oldest first and then the second oldest and then the third. No. What you need to do is you need to pick the person who's going to be good at the job. If they are your personal representative, if they are your trustee, if they are your agent under a financial power of attorney, they need to be able to do paperwork. So much paperwork. And finances. Don't pick somebody who's bad at finances. Don't make them share the job with somebody who's bad at finances. If you have two kids and one of them cannot handle money for the life of them, don't name them. Don't name them as backup. This is about, one, you while you're alive for the power of attorney, and two, making sure your family's looked after. If they go off and invest it in some crazy hedge fund that doesn't make any money, that is not doing your family a favor. You want somebody who's going to go, okay, it's my time. Take all the paperwork, go through your stuff, start handing it out, file everything. You really need somebody who is willing to accept a job. And that's another thing to think about is sometimes family members might not have the time. I've seen people pick retired accountant neighbors. I have seen people pick just really good friends. Um, somebody they think has the time, has the energy. If they have twin two-year-olds, this is not the time to name them. You can pick them in the future. But now is not the time. These people are not sleeping. So it's really important to pick somebody who can do it because the problem is if they can't, you can be left with a void. So I'm always going to make people pick a backup unless they're like terminally ill and they've got a month or something like that. But I'm always going to make people pick an agent and a backup. If you pick somebody who can't do it or won't do it, then you have to go to the backup, right? If you pick somebody who's not any good at it, that's not helpful to you. You're in kind of the same spot as if you hadn't picked anybody. You don't want there to be a void. You want competent people lined up, ready to roll. Well, and I know you're always saying that if you fail to make an estate plan, the government has one ready and waiting just for you. Yes. So if you don't, you know, if you don't have a personal representative named, 
or you know the named personal representative you know predeceases you what have you what happens who gets picked so this one goes in order of priority of heirs so generally speaking a spouse kids those folks are going to have first priority as you get and parents actually also because they have priority as heirs so spouse first then kids then parents and then they go out to like your siblings but if you're from a family with like seven siblings they all have equal priority which is something to keep in mind that means to get appointed somebody either has to do in maine at least a formal probate proceeding which is slower and generally more expensive or they need to get every other person to sign off on a document renouncing their right to be appointed as personal representative and file them with the court before they can open the probate. Do not do that. Do not do that. I have enough trouble chasing around families with only four children. You know, you've got one of them who's trying to do the right thing, trying to clean it up, and three of them who are, you know, in jail, uninterested, probably out of the country, you know? So it's just not a fun time. Oh, man. Um, That's an actual case. He's not out of the country. But anyway. All right. Um, so when, when being decisive in estate planning, um, how can that help you to you know, protect your wealth, uh, maintain wealth across generations, you know, leave something, uh, leave as much as possible uh, to, uh, to your heirs? As a general rule, if you sit down and have a plan, you are going to be advised about the tax consequences, unless you're DIYing it, in which case, good luck. But as a general rule, you're gonna be aware of the taxes, you're gonna be aware of what structure you're gonna have things in. There's ways to set it up so that you get dynastic trusts like um, you know, Rockefeller style, those sorts of folks. And you can only do that usually by planning ahead. If you just do probate, first of all, doing a probate is generally more expensive than putting together a trust. I do trust as a flat fee. I do probate as hourly because I never know what amount of time I'm going to spend on that. I charge $300 an hour. So generally speaking, it is much more efficient to do something like set up a trust ahead of time. Even if you do a will with like trust language in it to take advantage of some of the tax stuff, by doing that, you can generally avoid some of the common tax pitfalls. If you're not, if you really want to build generational wealth and you're not doing anything with a trust, you're not doing anything, period. It, it's just not happening. There's a million and a half ways that families can run themselves into the ground. And there's some really interesting studies about that, but I will leave that particular soapbox tempting though it is. Generally speaking, you have to think about the fact that if you want it to last more than three generations, you also need to think about family cohesiveness and how you are going to encourage that, which is not something you can do when you're dead, just so we're clear. So there's a lot you have to keep in mind if you really want to build a legacy. Gotcha. Um, this one will probably be uh, close to your heart. 
decisiveness in estate planning as concerns business transitions. I know there are everybody these days since the pandemic seems to be a small business owner, you know, people are able to replace their income by having an Etsy store selling popsicle stick figurines or whatever. Honestly, that'd be great. I would take that up. I probably can't replace my current income doing that though. I don't know. You should see some of these popsicle stick figurines. That'd be fair. They probably have a lot more talent than I do. <laughs> um, but yeah, just just being decisive and yep. and how that can smooth a business transition. Because I know any sort of waffling can really cause problems uh, when you're trying to you know, yeah. keep a going concern uh, in the air. I really see kind of two types of business planning with estate planning. The first is it's just a one person with, with the Etsy site, basically, right? They've got their Etsy shop and they are doing it. They're the whole business mm -hmm. and they don't plan for it to continue after them. Mm -hmm. Those people still need to have something in place to deal with the fact that they are not running the store anymore. So somebody has to be responsible for taking the site down or removing you as a vendor. Somebody has to answer your phone calls and emails. You know, if you're a professional like me, you have certain obligations even if you're dead. So you have to have something in place to make sure, okay, the reason I can't reach my attorney is they're dead, but I can get the records from here and they know how to get to that person or somebody's answering the phone and they can refer them to somewhere else. There's all sorts of things that have to be dealt with even if you're not continuing the business. If you are continuing the business, a really bad way to inherit a business is through probate. And I will tell you this because we had this in our office where a personal representative would not sign off on something. And while the business is in probate, they're the only person with any authority to deal with the business. So you've got, we had a situation where somebody had a big contract that they were just kind of trying to push the signing date for until they could get a person with the authority to sign it. Because the owner was dead, the ownership interest was in the probate, the oh, personal wow. representative wasn't willing so to sign nobody it. Had, so, you know, and oh, there's so much other did, mess I mean, with that. Don't leave us hanging, how did it end? Oh, it, it worked out in the end. Um, <laughs> it kind of twisted the personal representative's arm. Um, but they got it done, but it's, you do not want to be the person who's moving a big contract because nobody can sign it. Don't do that. Now, this one I know uh, is sort of a hot topic um, because, you know, folks are getting surprised by, uh, you know, main cares, claims and things like that. But decisiveness in estate planning and uh, and how, you, how it can help with long-term care planning, end of life, you know, what are the reasons to be decisive there? There's two, and they're both about time. The first is, if you're gonna get any sort of insurance, so if you're paying for Medicaid expenses, so long-term care, nursing home, in some places part of the assisted living cost, whatever, there's only a couple ways to pay for it. Well, a few, technically. You can pay privately, which is what the folks at the top are doing, you can be on government benefits already, which is the folks at the other end of the spectrum, and you can get insurance. That's it. 
there's no other place that the money comes from to pay for this. So if you, for example, want to preserve the house, you could get insurance ahead of time to pay for it, but you have to be young enough and healthy enough that they give you the insurance. If you're 70 and have like a heart problem, not as likely to be able to get that insurance, right? So the other reason is if you want to do planning for Medicaid, generally speaking, at least here, you've got to beat a five-year clock. And they're talking about upping it to seven. You have to have done all the things for your planning, finished them. Five years and one day prior to needing care, prior to applying for Medicaid, main care. So. I mean, that law is just targeting like the prudent. It's basically, saying it's, yeah. it's a big windfall for people who get out there and do it bef well before, five years before they need it. Yeah. I mean, who's going to sit there and be like, all right, so I've got about four years and eight months. I'm thinking I really should have done that. No, nobody thinks about that. You don't look at your life as, okay, when am I dying? Forget that. And plenty of people live to a ripe old age and you don't know if or when you're going to need that sort of assistance. You know, you could have dementia, you could have a stroke. Things like this can change on a dime when you are basically over 50, not to be rude. Um, longevity in my family is great. Like grandma made 101. I am not really concerned about how long I'm going to live. But, you know, at 90, she had to move into an independent apartment closer to family. In like her mid-90s, she had to go to assisted living. In her late 90s, she had to go to long-term care. So, you know, she could have waited until she was 90. But should she have? No. <laughs> I was going to say, statistically, I don't, I don't think anybody yeah. should, should rely on, you know. Yeah. So... If you do that sort of stuff early, you're not running the risk that you're going to miss this window. I've had people who came in and they're talking about, oh, we need to do something. And I'm like, okay, well, what's the life expectancy in your family? Like, how long did your mom's parents live? And they gave me a number that was three years out from her current age as the life expectancy. And I'm like, well, she's 80. And the life expectancy is 83 generally in the family. You're not going to make five years. She's going to need care in the next three. In fact, she actually died within about two years. So. Um, Do what you can when you can. But. Well, she got lucky. She had a nurse child at home taking uh, care of her, and she didn't end up needing external care. Okay. But. Dodge that bullet. I, not so, the sort of thing you want to rely either on. Either plan or make sure your child goes it's into the healthcare nurse. field. Those are your options. Yeah, I mean, there's some other exceptions, but those also need you to plan ahead. So, like, there is a child caregiver exemption in Maine. The child who gave you care for at least two years at a nursing home level can inherit the house outright. Their siblings can't. But that's a pretty good kind of last-ditch effort. But still, it has to be two years. And you have to have some sort of doctor's letter saying it's that level of care. It's nursing home level care. The general way to do that is when you start caring for them, you go see the doctor and get that letter. And that way you can be like, well, clearly, if at the time it was that level of care and they didn't improve, you know, you get another letter from their doctor later. Mm -hmm. That's really good, right? But if you're trying to do this backwards, if you don't have some sort of agreement that you're there as the caretaker, 
all of this stuff and you're trying to just kind of fix it later doesn't work just doesn't work um so next on my list minor children dependents beloved pets my favorite how how does being decisive help help those groups out if you actually decided things part of what you've done is you've picked a guardian for them so you've sat down and usually you've spoken to and you should speak to you should not Name people in documents without getting their consent, because they don't have to do it, remember. I don't think I'd ask chat GPT to name a guardian. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Probably make somebody up with our luck. Um, but if you've actually decided who the guardian is going to be and put it down, oh, man, nothing is as nasty as custody fights. Nothing. The other thing is these people know if something happens to you, they're on the hook. They know that they're next. So if they hear, oh my gosh, she's in the hospital, they're gonna come they over and be ready. like, yeah. oh crap, the kids might be home alone and be prepared to take on all of that and know it's expected of them. You don't have like, I don't know, three aunts sitting there going, well, I don't know how to raise children, you know? If nobody's, uh, if you don't name someone who's responsible, nobody's responsible. That's an issue and you know, if you do it badly enough, kids can end up in foster care waiting for like a family member or somebody to come claim them. I mean, usually somebody steps up before them, but eh, don't, don't test those things. Another thing, pets can't look after themselves and they can't use the phone. If something has happened to you, you need somebody who knows to go immediately and make sure they're fed, they have water, they're being taken care of. It is really critical that, cause, like children can die, right? This happens. But they are less likely to be in a situation where they can't communicate. Mm. Pets, if are they're left alone with a dead body for a week, not good. So you want to make sure somebody's immediately ready to come get them and take care of them. Wow, those were so heavy. I didn't even have my next question <laughs> prepared. I'm thinking, Sorry, I I'm just... I think Charlotte knows... I, little, I worry about my cats daughter. a lot. She can open doorknobs. She could go wander over to the neighbors, you know. Yeah. Even that, you know, capacity of a small child still exceeds, you know, what our pets are able to do for themselves. Yeah, I worry a lot about my cats as a single woman, so they're, uh, they're top of mind there. Um, Next is, is I know you had alluded earlier to the sort of knickknacks and things that mm -hmm. perhaps like toasters may have a disproportionate sentimental impact. Yes. Um, how can how can being decisive sort of, uh, you know, ensure that the right person ends up with, with the right priceless treasure? You... I see families where people don't talk about what's happening to like the wedding rings or um, other stuff like that. Or like you only mention that you want this painting to go to Joanne to Frank. You never mention it to anybody but Frank. And so nobody else knows about it, right? If you've got this written down, again, even if they think you're crazy and you made a bad decision because clearly they should have gotten it, it's at least down. You have something to go off of. Your family members can argue about it emotionally, but legally they don't have a recourse unless they have the whole will thrown out because you were clearly out to lunch about the whole thing. 
That's actually harder to do than it sounds though. So if you've got all of the kind of important sentimental stuff or you've talked to your family and you know what they want and it's written down, the finality of that is usually invaluable. All right. Well, that's everything I had for today, Alex. Thank yeah, you fantastic. so much for taking the time to, to talk through all of this. I know it's funny because I have a bar number, but you know, I, I practiced uh, uh, disability law. So a lot of this is, is new to me. And um, my mountain of soap boxes. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> well, and as, uh, as uh, your dad, uh, Attorney Francis Jackson, is fond of pointing out to me, it took me two, two and a half years to even get life insurance. Yep. So in any event, this has been another illuminating episode of... A Will and a Way. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us this week on the Will and the Way podcast. Make sure to visit our website, jacksonestateplanning.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, or via RSS so you'll never miss a show. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode.